Good morning. The reading today is from 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 11, uh, and it's on page 559, 559 in the Blue Bibles, which if you don't have a Bible and you're visiting today, feel free to take that home. That's our gift to you. So read with me as we hear from the Word of the Lord. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. It's the word of the Lord. Well, what is the gospel? Now, kids... Uh, It's been a little while since we've had Praise Factory, but I wonder if anybody can tell me or sing me what the gospel is. Does anyone remember? Does anyone remember the song? What is the gospel? G-O-S-P-E-L. What is the gospel? Anyone want to sing it? Anyone brave enough? No? Can anybody tell me? I don't think I'm going to get a response. But you remember that song, right? Yeah, yeah, good. It's an age-old question, isn't it? One that's at least 2,000 years old. And for the Christian, the question is not just a comprehension question, like the kind that you would get on a test or an exam to see whether you know the right answer, to make sure that you get it correct. Now, that's an essential part of it, as we'll see, to understand what it is. But for the Christian, the answer to what is the gospel matters far more than for, for not just knowledge, but for living. To ask a Christian what is the gospel is basically the same as asking, what does it mean to be a Christian? And one of the beautiful and profound things about the gospel is its simplicity, So much so that even a child could hear it, could sing about it, believe it, and hold fast to it. And yet, there is also a wondrous depth to it, such that every Christian who trusts in it will continue to discover new ways that it penetrates and shapes our hearts and works itself out in our lives and in our thinking. But there is a danger Satan does not want you to believe the gospel. He is, after all, the father of lies, and he's opposed to everything good and everything God. Your flesh doesn't want to believe the gospel either. And when we don't hold fast to the truth, then we drift. We drift into whirlpools of falsehood and destruction. Paul was concerned for the Corinthians that they were beginning to drift, and so he wanted to anchor them in God's truth. That is God's concern for you, and that is my concern for us. This first gospel, first given by Jesus and his apostles, is a matter of first importance. And we respond to it in four ways, which are the four sections of my sermon this morning. And they're all doing words. They're all verbs. One, grip. Two, grasp. Three, grow. Four, gossip. 
Each of these four words are to do with the gospel. We are to grip the gospel. We are to grasp the gospel. We are to grow in the gospel. And we are to gossip the gospel. Let's have God's word open as we hear from him this morning, beginning at our first point, grip. If you're taking notes, at least the headings are easy, nice and short. You might be wondering something, which would be a fair wondering. What is the difference between points one and two? What's the difference between gripping and grasping? Well, the most significant difference is that gripping is not just grabbing something once. It is grabbing it and holding on to it, never letting go. See, the reason you have grip tape on a tennis racket, if you play tennis, is so that you won't let go of the racket. Otherwise, it will end up in somebody's face. To lose your grip is to let go of something that you've been holding on to, like your sanity. And Paul wants the Corinthians to make sure that they grip the gospel and hold it tight. Let's read from verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. It's been a little while since I pointed this out, so I'll point it out again. The translation of brothers there refers to both brothers and sisters. It's just that the word in the Greek and also in English a few decades ago was a a collective one referring to everybody. Paul has just finished talking about spiritual gifts, which we've been looking at over the last few weeks from chapters 12 to 14, and now he moves on from that to this extremely important topic. You know, I love chapter 15 of Corinthians. It's one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible. If chapter 13 is the great love chapter, then chapter 15 is the great resurrection chapter. And I'm so looking forward to diving into this chapter as we meditate on the wonder and glory of Christ's resurrection. And the reason Paul is diving into this is because he's heard that some in the church have begun to deny the resurrection of Christ. They've begun to deny that the followers of Christ themselves will be resurrected. If you look at verse 12, that's what he uh, points out. We're going to go into that next week, and this is the reason for him setting it up in these first 11 verses. But also, Paul was concerned to make clear the wisdom of the gospel at the very beginning of this letter. And so he is obviously also concerned about them drifting away from the gospel. And so in order to lay a solid foundation for what he has to say about the resurrection, Paul reminds them of the very faith that they received and that they stand in. As we've seen in preaching through this letter, the Corinthians had so much other stuff going on in their lives and in their church that it's unsurprising that they would be beginning to forget and to drift away from the very gospel that saved them in the first place. It's like that when lots of things are happening, when you're juggling lots of things, unless you keep reminding yourself of of, and are well-practiced in basic fundamental principles, you will likely forget them. I don't know how many times I've made a loaf of bread in our bread maker at home. And it's not exactly the most difficult task in the world. You know, it requires three three ingredients, water, bread flour, and yeast. And yet, this week, having not done so for some time, I couldn't just grab the, the bag of bread flour and instinctively pull out the right amounts and know the order in which they went in, know the quirks of our own machine to make sure it doesn't, like, overflow Oh, I, it's been so long that I couldn't just do that. Had I done it every day for the last two weeks, then I have no doubt that I would have been able to do exactly that. We must always remember and continue to remind ourselves of the gospel. This is the gospel that we haven't invented, that wasn't cooked up by a group of Christian conspiracy theorists. But it is the gospel that Paul preached to the Corinthians and was received by them and incredibly is the same gospel that has been preached since the ink dried on this very letter in the first century through the generations down thousands of years and across the world to reach even us here in Darwin in 2022. Incredible. 
We have thousands of years and thousands of kilometers further away received this gospel. Praise God for his mercy that we would be privileged enough to have received it. Notice Paul makes it clear, as he has done throughout the letter, that despite the mess the church was in, they really are still standing in the gospel. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to say that this is the gospel in which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. This is the one, the, the gospel that the Corinthian church is being saved by. The present continuous tense there reminds us that salvation is an ongoing process. It, sorry, it has an ongoing component to it. That's clear important distinction. In the Christian faith, because of how the Bible speaks of salvation, people are sometimes confused about how to be saved and what it means to be saved for their lives. See, does it simply require a prayer to invite Jesus into your heart and nothing more? Does the prayer guarantee your ticket to heaven? Or do I need to prove my worth to God to, and, and get to a certain point of good Christian behavior before I can be confident that I am saved? As I've mentioned before, Christians throughout the ages have talked about this with the terms of justification, sanctification, and glorification. Justification refers to the biblical truth that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus. Our salvation comes the moment we believe. And that's what Paul alludes to in verse 1 when he tells the Corinthians that they received the gospel. But, when, but because we don't have God's eyes, we don't know for sure when that happens. And the Bible warns against faith that might look real, but really isn't. And that's why God exhorts us in His Word in 2 Corinthians 13.5 to examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. That's what sanctification is. It is the ongoing spiritual work of God in our hearts and lives that produces repentance and the fruit of the Spirit. You know that a tree has been planted and is still alive because it is growing and producing fruit. You don't say, oh yeah, I planted it back then and I haven't looked at it since and I'm pretty sure it's still alive. That's pretty much what I do and they're always dead. Paul is showing here that, that the one who has been reborn, the one who has been justified, is being sanctified. The two go together. And that's what he's unpacking here in verse 2. We are being saved. And part of that ongoing work of salvation is us continuing to hold fast to the word that he preached. That is the gospel. We must grip the gospel. We must grip it for dear life. You know, if you were dangling over the edge of Jim Jim Falls in Kakadu, 200 meters up, you would be gripping the edge for dear life. Friends, that is the sense that Paul gives us here of holding fast to the gospel. And look at how sobering his words are there. Unless you believed in vain. Unless you believed all for nothing. You see, Christians are saved by grace through faith in Jesus. There is no other way, there is no other name by which we can be saved. But as the old saying goes, you are saved by faith alone, but not a faith that is alone. To try and separate justification from sanctification is like trying to separate sand from the desert or fish from chips or a teenager from their mobile phone. You might, you might think that that is you know, possible, but it's actually not. The, the laws of the universe make those things inseparable. And this is something that we don't just read about in the letters of the New Testament. It comes from Jesus himself. After telling the parable of the sower and explaining it to his disciples, Jesus says this in Luke 8:15. As for that in the good soil, 
They are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. The seed that fell in all of the other grounds, it all died. Satan snatched up the seed on the concrete. The seed in the shallow soil sprung up and then was dried and died by the sun. And those that fell among the thorns were choked up. The seed that finds good soil is the seed which holds fast to the gospel with an honest and good heart and bears fruit with patience. You know a tree by its fruit. You can be confident of justification in a person's life when you witness sanctification in their life. And what does that look like? Well, as Jesus says here, holding fast to the gospel, bearing fruit with patience. That's exactly what Paul says in verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 15. Brothers and sisters, holding fast to the word requires spirit-filled perseverance. As the parable of the sower reminds us, there is always a risk that Satan will snatch the word, that we will just give up because it's too hard, or that the temptations and the worries of the world will choke out our faith. And many more besides. Hold fast Brothers and sisters, hold fast, lest you believe in vain. Paul is not mincing words here. To lose your grip on the gospel is to have believed for nothing. Grip the gospel like your life depended on it, because it does. Sometimes we feel like it's all up to us. That it, you know, if our grip strength isn't good enough, if we haven't done enough reps with those grip strength thingies, then we will fall to our doom. But no, gripping the gospel is not like gripping on a loose, slippery rock at the top of Jim Jim Falls. Gripping the gospel is more like gripping the hand of Superman. Even if you think you're barely holding on, by a fingernail in your faith. That is enough. You're not saved by the strength of your faith. You're saved by the strength of the one you put your faith in. Do not give up. Do not let yourself drift from the gospel. And do not fall for false gospels. Which brings us to our second action. Grasp. As I said before, the the difference between grip and grasp is that grip carries in its meaning the sense of holding on to something and not letting go. Grasp describes when you, you first grab hold of something, like this water bottle that I just grasped. And I'm actually using it in this uh, section in a slightly different but common way, which is a bit more specific. And kids, let me ask you, when you're learning something whether in school or elsewhere, have you ever had that feeling of, you know, something being a bit difficult to understand? You ever experienced that? Yeah? Um, and, when you, and then, when you do understand it, you know, you're feeling like you, you finally get it. You know that feeling too? Yeah? Oh, like in math. So addition is a bit tricky when you, when you first start, Right? It's difficult to understand when you, it's difficult to, to, to get, but once you grasp it, you know, then subtraction is a little bit easier, and then eventually you, you have to figure out multiplication and then <gasps> division, right? Well, in English, we often talk about this process of learning and finally understanding as grasping something. I finally have get it, I've grasped it. That's what I mean here. 
verse 1 and 2 have been Paul reminding the Corinthians of the importance of the gospel and the need to grip it, to hold fast to it. And in these next few verses, he wants to remind them of exactly what the gospel is that they must grasp. Let's read from verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles." Paul, like a good postman, delivered the message of the gospel to the Corinthians. And he delivered it as the message that he himself had received. This message had its origin in God and its fullest revelation in Christ. And was the gospel message that the early church passed on to one another and down through the ages. Notice how Paul says here that it is of first importance... We've been talking a bit these last few weeks as we preached on 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 and spiritual gifts about theological triage. That is, this idea that some matters of Christian doctrine are more important than others and have different degrees of that. And while spiritual gifts uh, we would class most of the time as important but not urgent, here now we see Paul himself is showing us how to rightly triage the gospel. This is essential. It is a matter of first importance. This is not a matter of no importance. It's not a matter of only importance. Nor is it a matter of little importance. In other words, the gospel must be gripped and grasped, and the gospel is not the only thing that we should care about. It is of first importance. You may not know the best foods to put into your body, but you know that you must eat. That is a matter of first importance. And grasping and gripping the gospel is of first importance. The first time I was introduced to the significance of these verses was from Australian theologian John Dixon. Being also an historian, he showed why this text is one that historians consider to be extremely important. The structure and the repetition indicate that this was likely something of a formula that was passed on early in the church's history. And because this letter dates to within a few decades of Jesus' death and resurrection, it's an important piece for understanding what the gospel message was really early in the life of the church. And even though it was written in Greek, you still get a sense of that structure and repetition in the English translation. You see, it says, that Christ died, that He was buried, that He was raised, that He appeared, then He appeared, and then He appeared, and then He appeared. It's something memorable that the church could continue to, to repeat and to tell to one another. This is the message that we believe. And the message can be broken down into two central ideas, two central truths. Firstly, Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scripture and was buried. And secondly, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with Scripture. This is of first importance. This is the gospel. Is this the gospel that you hold to? Is this the gospel that you stand fast in? Christian author Trevin Wax wrote a book several years ago called Counterfeit Gospels. In it, he talks about six counterfeit gospels that we as modern Western Christians are likely to believe. And in a blog post, he listed even more, and I'm sure there are plenty more as well besides. 
Let me give you a few of the ones that he identified that I think are applicable to us, that perhaps we are likely to fall into the trap of believing. And as I do, let me encourage you to think about which of these Gospels, or perhaps others, are ones that you are tempted or prone to believe in over the true Gospel. The therapeutic Gospel tells us that sin robs us of our sense of fullness, Christ's death proves our worth as humans and gives us power to reach our potential. And the church helps us find happiness. Well, the formalist gospel. Sin is failing to keep church rules and regulations. Christ's death gives me an agenda so I can begin to follow the pre-described forms of Christianity. Perhaps the activist gospel. The kingdom is advanced through our efforts to build a just society. The gospel's power is demonstrated through cultural transformation. And the church is united around political causes and social projects. Perhaps the mystic gospel. Salvation comes through an emotional experience with God. The church is there to help me feel close to God by helping me along in my pursuit of mystical union. We are always at risk of not just drifting away from the gospel and into unbelief, but also drifting into a false and counterfeit gospel. God wants us to grasp the true gospel and to grip it with all our might. This is, after all, what all Scripture points to and unpacks and shines more light on. Jesus Himself speaks of these key components. Mark 10.45, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. Jesus dying for our sins was not primarily because He wanted to be a good moral example of sacrifice for us. That was something that was not unknown to the Greco-Roman world. But no, that idea was, was not unique to Jesus. And nor did he do it just to show his power and victory over sin. No, he died on the cross for our sins to give his life as a ransom for many. It is Jesus' blood that serves as a ransom for our sin. And he would predict his own resurrection on the third day. John 2.19 is one example, which he would, of course, prove later on. Friends, if you're here this morning and you are curious about Christianity, you're interested in what we believe and what we're all about, well, this right here is it. You've come on a good day. I mean, every Sunday is a good day to come. The gospel is this message and, it in, and in it, God calls us to turn from our sin and to trust in Jesus for salvation. But why do we need salvation? Well, it is because our sin condemns us. As Paul says in Romans 1:18, "For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth." And there is only one way to be saved from the wrath of God, through faith in Jesus. Because He died on the cross for our sins and was raised to life so that we might be saved and be raised to life in Him. And Paul takes great effort to prove that event right here. One of the big questions that skeptics of Christianity often bring up is the unbelievability of the resurrection. Even some who profess to be Christians have found this challenge so difficult that they have given up their faith altogether, either by completely walking away from it or by rationalizing away the resurrection. And we'll look at that more closely in the coming weeks. But the thing that strikes me from these verses is the fact that even within a few years of Jesus' death and resurrection, it seems like Christians were already receiving these challenges, were already needing to come up with a defense for why they could make such extraordinary claims. 
Seriously? You think this carpenter from Nazareth came to life after being in a tomb for three days? I don't believe that. The same questions people ask us today were the same ones being asked within decades of Jesus' death and resurrection. Makes sense, doesn't it? If somebody made that claim, you'd want good evidence. And this is why this little gospel nugget, this little formula that was passed along has such a long list of the people Jesus appeared to. Cephas is the uh, Aramaic name for the Apostle Peter, likely showing here, separating him from the Twelve because of his leadership in the group. And the Twelve seems to have become a name used to refer to those disciples that walked with Jesus during his earthly ministry. You read about them in the Gospels. And then after that, Paul goes on to boldly claim that Jesus appeared to more than 500 people at one time. Those aren't accidental details. Paul wants to show that there was a large number of people who saw the resurrected Christ, and the fact that they saw him all at the same time is showing that you know, they didn't get together to conspire about this, or it's not that he appeared you know, privately to 500 people in their all individual devotions, as if it was some kind of vision. No, he's saying that to, to demonstrate this really happened. And then he points out that most of them are still alive, even though some have died. And the reason he does this is to say, hey, if you're not sure about how credible these claims are about Jesus' resurrection appearances, then you can go and ask the very people who saw him. They're alive. Go talk to them. They had such confidence in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that they were willing to make this sort of claim. And then he lists James and the other uh, apostles. I think this is likely referring to other apostles that were not part of the twelve, like Paul. See, Paul lists these things. They're not just the, uh, you know, a creed that the church could continue to recite and say. They are historical facts. And that's why Paul has included them. You cannot have the gospel without the resurrection. And you cannot have the gospel without Jesus dying on the cross for our sin. They are essential. Brothers and sisters, is this the gospel that you have received? Is it the gospel that you believe and that you stand in? Or is there another gospel that you put first in your life? Be wary of drift away from this first gospel of first importance. Because drift happens so subtly. It happens when you hear teachers start to put uh, first something other than Jesus and his gospel. And you start to find them more compelling than the very gospel that God himself tells us is of first importance. Drift happens when somebody asks you what it means to be a Christian and your answer is built on something other than this. Perhaps you want to tell them about how life is better with Jesus, or perhaps how life is more peaceful, or it's more mystically marvelous, or it's more moral. Drift happens when you begin to trust in a message other than the word that you have received for your salvation. It happens when you regard other people's words more highly than God's. The first gospel that came from the first messengers is what we are to hold first. There is no other gospel by which you may be saved and no other gospel by which you may have hope in the resurrection. Grasp this message, brothers and sisters. Grasp it and don't change it. It is what God has given and grow in it, which is our third action to do with the gospel. What in your mind 
does a growing Christian look like? Kids, what do you think a growing Christian looks like? Anyone? Oh, reading the Bible more and more? Yeah. Any others? I'm sure there are all wonderful ideas in those lovely minds of yours. Well, let me ask you, you, t- you tell me what you think, well, you didn't tell me, but in your mind, answer. You tell me what you think as I say this. Is it someone who knows a lot of the Bible and can quote lots of it from memory? Is it someone who leaves behind everything to go and take the gospel to unreached people groups of the world? Is it someone who lives detached from the pleasures and the vices of this world and doesn't feel any temptation to pursue them? Is it someone who works harder than anyone else in preaching the gospel? Is it someone who rests so much on the grace of God that they never worry for a moment about their salvation or whether they've done enough for God? Well, mature Christians might look like each of these examples. But immature Christians might look like each of them too. So what's the difference? Paul, in these couple of verses, shows us two very important traits of a growing Christian. Let's read from verse 8. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Paul is likely adding his own bits to the message, the the formula here, because he breaks the formula that that has been used up to this point. And in doing so, he indicates that he is the last of the apostles. The chronological order that he's been giving so far to the appearances of of the resurrected Jesus now comes to a close. There are no more apostles after Paul. And he describes it as one being untimely born. The phrase there could also be translated unnaturally born. And Paul's point is that his conversion and calling as an apostle, which we read about in the book of Acts, was not like any other of the other apostles. And if you read Acts chapter 9, then I'm sure you'd agree with him. The others saw Jesus' resurrected body, most likely in the 40 days that he walked the earth after being raised from the dead. Paul's was later, after that. But not only was he the last chronologically, he expands on what he means by this from verse 9 onwards. For I am the least of the apostles, he says, unworthy to be called an apostle. He certainly doesn't sound like a man who thinks he's God's great gift to the world. Here he is placing himself at the bottom of the pile. I'm sure many of us would probably disagree with him. He wrote, you know, half the Bible, or the New Testament. And yet here he is, saying he is the least. Paul doesn't leave us to guess why he says that. Because I persecuted the church of God. Once again, we're not left to guess how he did that. Acts chapter 8, verse 3, it says, Saul ravaged the church and he entered house after house, dragging off men and women and putting them in prison. Do you see what Paul is saying here? Because of his history, because of how terrible and how heinous his past was, because of how greatly he persecuted the very church and the very Lord that he now loves. He does not deserve 
to be where he is. He does not deserve to be an apostle. We know this feeling, don't we? We perhaps felt the unworthiness of not measuring up to the standard of our parents or our peers or our employers. We know how to make sure that other people know that they don't deserve the same status or the certain statuses that we hold. We know how to punish others for their mistakes and to hold that against them. I'm so glad that God doesn't treat me the way I deserve. I'm so glad that He doesn't treat me the way that I too easily and far too often treat others. Paul shows us the first step in growing Christianity. A growing Christian is one who increasingly bases their life on knowing that they do not deserve to be there. Yes, Paul is talking about God making him an apostle, which isn't something that we can relate to. But the same grace that transformed a man who was persecuting the very body of Christ also takes you and me from being people who love the world and everything in it more than him to forsaking the world and running to Jesus. What a glorious message of grace. You see, the Bible is clear. We were enemies of God when His grace turned our lives upside down and made us His friends. You only have to look as far as Romans 5 to see that. And of our conversion and coming to Christ, we can say the same as Paul. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. But by the grace of God, have I been taken from somebody who is totally undeserving of his love and mercy and salvation to one who may stand in his grace? Does this still amaze and humble you? I get the feeling that for most of us, we're more likely to say, yeah, I get it. Now I want to move on to, you know, the other stuff that I need to grow in. You know, Christian growth is about getting that first and then just moving on to the next bit. But the Christian never graduates from the gospel. The Christian doesn't grasp it and then grow by moving on from the cross. No, we grow by sitting at the foot of the cross and marveling at the grace of God. Carl Henry, a, a theologian who's now passed on from the uh, 1900s, a giant in the, in the faith, one time was having a conversation with another giant, Don Carson, and he asked him, as somebody who just had such an incredible intellect, yet somehow managed to still remain so humble, he asked him, how, how do you do it? Henry replied, how can anyone remain arrogant? when they stand beside the cross. We grow by sitting at the foot of the cross and marveling at the grace of God. Far from forgetting fundamental principles of the gospel, the growing Christian keeps staring at the gospel and seeing everything through it. It is a fundamental principle that we never forget, that we never stop coming back to. It is a first importance. When you get into the car, one of, if not the first thing you should do is check to make sure that your rear view mirror is set in the right position so that you can see clearly out the back window. You know, if, if uh, you or somebody has knocked the mirror or you had to tilt it yesterday because you needed to talk to your parents, or your parents, hmm, that'd be interesting, talk to your kids, you know, <laughs> or see their smiling faces, or you had to flick it up because somebody behind you had their high beams on and you were very gracious in recognizing that maybe they'd just forgotten. 
You need to adjust it lest you reverse into your neighbor's gate. You need to do that every time you get into the car. The growing Christian recognizes increasingly that it is only by the grace of God that we are here. That is foundational. But it doesn't end there. God's grace towards Paul was not in vain. Notice the same language in comparison to verse 2. God graciously saving Paul and setting him apart as an apostle was not fruitless. God, God placing him in the position that he is in was in was not for nothing. And Paul here embodies the second mark of a growing Christian. And it's crucial to understand that it comes in this order. If you try to take this step first, then you'll end up with a works-based salvation. If you neglect this next step, then you end up with a cheap and fruitless grace, which is, of course, no grace at all. Paul is embodying here both justification and sanctification. The growing Christian is able to work harder than any of them to set their face on the prize and to pursue Jesus above all else because they know that they're not working for their salvation. They are working because of it. They don't need to sing for their supper. They sing because they've received their supper. And yet, even such working is no grounds for boasting. Paul says that even in his hard work, in his working harder than any of the others, it is the grace of God at work in him. Sanctification is a work of God, though it is a work of God that we partner with. Brothers and sisters, let us labor and work so the grace of God to us may not be in vain. I pray that we would grow in the gospel, recognizing that we contribute nothing to our salvation, but receive it by faith. And I pray that we would work hard for the sake of the gospel, empowered by God's Spirit, out of love for the one who has shown us grace. If you're here this morning and you do not know this gospel that I'm <clears throat> talking about, or this gospel that is of first importance... Let me tell you now that the word gospel simply means good news. And that it is good news because our sins deserve the right penalty of God's wrath, which is fundamentally bad news. And the gospel is good news because it means we are saved from the penalty of our sin as a work of grace through Jesus' death on the cross. It's because of the gospel that we can say, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And the incredible thing about receiving and standing in this grace is that when we turn to Christ, He promises to take us to be with Himself, following Him in resurrection when He comes again. Justification, sanctification, glorification. Past, present, future. Let me invite you to consider the state of your own soul before God. And to turn and trust in Jesus for salvation today. I pray that you might also stand in this gospel and hold fast to it. And brothers and sisters, may we forever marvel at the gospel. If you find it difficult to get motivated to work hard for Jesus, the solution is not to listen to some more motivational mixtapes. Or to somehow, you know, artificially inspire yourself to do more for the gospel. No, the way to sanctification is through a deeper grasp of justification. The way to working harder is working harder in gripping God's grace to you. It's through that that God will shift and change and reorder the priorities of your heart. And in so doing, by God's grace, you will increase your desire to share this gospel with any who will hear. And that brings us to our final section.
gossip. Kids, can anyone tell me, is gossip a good or a bad thing? Give me like a thumbs up if it's good, thumbs down if it's bad. Oh, I've got to cut over a few ranges of, of, of responses there. One of my daughters asked me this morning, I asked her, and she was like, I don't know what it means. And so I explained the meaning, and she said, I think that would be a bad thing. Can anyone tell me what it is, kids? What's, what's gossip? What is gossip? <laughs> I shouldn't do that. That's terrible. No? Well, I'm going to use the word a little bit cheekily this morning and in a way that others have used it. See, normally it is a bad thing. It is talking about people behind their backs so that they don't know. And usually it is unkind things. Well, this morning I want us to gossip the gospel. If you're wondering what that might look like, it looks like this. Hey, Will, did you hear about Jesus? I heard that he died on the cross for our sin, was buried and then raised from the dead, all of which was according to the scriptures. Did you hear that? Have you received that message yet? Look, let's be honest, I can't imagine any conversation going like that, right? But I hope that that is the essence of many conversations that we will increasingly have with more and more people in our lives. Let's read verse 11. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Paul now scoops up everything and everyone he's mentioned to say that it doesn't matter who you heard it from, whether it was him, whether it was Peter, whether it was the 12 or the 500. The point is that this is the message. This is what we preach and this is what we continue to preach. And this is what you believed in at first and what you must continue to hold on to. As Paul said earlier in this book, God has so ordained it that his message would be made known to the world through the foolishness of preaching. And it is the way that God continues to spread the gospel all over this globe. It's the way that God wants us to continue in this work. As Paul would write later in Romans chapter 10, how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? We have an unfinished task. And the job of preaching the good news is not exclusively that of the preacher. It is a job that belongs to all of us. All of Christ's disciples are tasked with making disciples of all nations. We are all to be gossipers of the gospel. Is the gospel that you believe worth gossiping about? Do you grasp the implications and the weight of it that it drives you to prayer for your unsaved family and friends, for your loved ones who are drifting from the gospel? In the same way that we can grow complacent to the majesty and the awe of this message, so we can grow complacent with the reality of its implications. A person who grasps the gospel and is gripping and growing in it is one who desires to gossip it. If you've been around the church long enough, you'll know that this is one of the most significant components of the Christian life. But if you're anything like me, I imagine you've also felt the guilt and the, and the, and the burden of this and of not sharing it with people more than you know you should. In fact, for most of my Christian life, guilt is the feeling I've associated with sharing the gospel more than any other feeling. Guilt is that I should be doing it. Guilt that I have not been doing it and don't do it anywhere as much as I should. And you might struggle to gossip the gospel for a variety of reasons. Perhaps you're afraid of what your friends will think of you. Perhaps you're afraid that you'll lose a friendship by simply bringing it up. 
Maybe you feel like you don't know enough in order to be able to share the gospel well and wisely and winsomely. That struggle is a good, vital sign. Far better that than having absolutely no desire to gossip the gospel. Let me give you three pointers to grow in gossiping the gospel. First, pray for yourself that you might grow in wisdom and courage and for others, that God might give you love for them and opportunities to talk to them. Secondly, meditate on the gospel. Grip it with your heart and with your mind and grasp its truth and wonder and let God's spirit be at work in your own heart to move you in growing in it. And finally, do it together. Seek counsel and building up from your brothers and sisters in Christ at church. Pray for one another. Ask others to pray as you seek to share it. On this last point, I've found it enormously encouraging to see how our own church has grown in this. I'm so thankful and I praise God for Him working in and through us to pass on this gospel to the people of Darwin, the stories that I hear, the prayer requests that I receive. It is enormously encouraging. Keep sending those through. Keep sending those prayer requests, those praise notes through so that we as a church can pray and praise God for the gossiping of His gospel through us. By grace. At one point this week, I was uh, looking after Austin while Robin and her auntie and our kids were all swimming towards the waterfall at Magook. During that time, I sat in the water with him and I marveled at the beauty around me. I tried to recapture the, the wonder of what it was like to be in a place like that for the very first time. Like I had been over 10 years ago. I tried to relive some of the, the expressions that I could see on the faces of those who were seeing it for the first time. I tried to feel the same thing. I don't think I succeeded. And I don't think I ever will. But as I've done this with the gospel, as I've sat at the foot of the cross, I've been amazed at how God has continued to captivate my heart with it. I can't put it down to a feeling, though feelings are certainly involved. And if you knew me in my early teen years, you would know that I was even more emotional than I am now. And yet my own growth has not occurred primarily through feelings. Perhaps the best way I can describe it is that I see everything else through it now. And that fills me with awe and wonder and praise of God. The gospel is of first importance. I pray that we would grip the gospel, grasp the gospel, grow in the gospel, and gossip the gospel. And in so doing, May we never take it for granted. Let's pray. Lord, we are here only by your grace. Without it, we would not even exist. 
Without it, we would be lost. Father, we pray that as we spend the rest of our days looking into these things which angels have longed to look into, into the glory of your gospel, may your grace to us not be in vain. May you keep us from drifting. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.